Welcome to the Grace College Podcast, a ministry of Grace Bible Church located in College Station, Texas. We desire to impact students who will impact the world for Christ. Hope you enjoy the talk and hang around for more after. Guys, we are one week from spring break. Can you believe it? I guess none of you are excited about a week off. We got spring break in a week. All right, all right, all right, all right. Well, I know some of you, like leaving the, the libraries and study opportunities you get here is overwhelming to you. And so don't worry, they'll still be here when you get back in a couple of weeks. But just kind of as a last little thing, we will be off in Southwood College for the next two weeks. So if you come here looking for community and people that love you, unfortunately you won't find it in this room. But you're welcome to join us in the main service, but we'll be off for those two weeks. Um, but if you have a Bible... Jump to Mark chapter 6, that's where we're going to be this morning, and hope you guys, uh, man, are are excited about this last week, and hopefully you have some fun spring break plans that involve doing lots of nothing. So Mark chapter 6, we're going to be reading verses um, 30 through 44, it'll be fun, 30 through 44. It says this, now the apostles returned to Jesus And told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had not had had leisure to even eat. And they went away by the boat to a desolate place by themselves. And now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got ahead of them. Now when when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And it grew late and his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to, give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And broke the loaves and gave gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Let me pray for us one more time. Lord, thank you so much for your word, thank you so much for this moment in your life where you provide for the multitudes. And Lord, I, I know that for many of us as we read this moment, it, it sounds like a sweet little encounter with Jesus, but I, I pray that we might see that you are creating a revolutionary atmosphere in this moment. And that, Lord, as we see what you are really doing in this moment, we would get behind you and bow to you, knowing that you are the only one who can control what we can't. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, when I was in college, uh, I spent some summers in Colorado, and one summer in particular, I went with some buddies of mine, and we stayed in this house that we had rented from uh, college students that had decided they didn't want to live there for the summer, and so they were subleasing it to us, but they had taken all of their furniture and everything, and, and in Colorado, it was in Boulder, Colorado, they, uh, they, they didn't have air conditioning in this house, and it was situated right downtown. 
And in summer, during most of the year in Colorado, you're fine not having an air conditioning. But in Boulder over the summer, it got to like 90 or something like that. So it would get pretty hot in the house. And so we had to leave all the windows open. So the first night I get there, I lay down next to my, my friend uh, in our, <laughs> no, no beds in the place, just on the floor with my sleeping bag, total college dude move. And as I'm laying there, we have the windows open and I hear at 3 a.m. an ambulance zoom by. Woo, 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 woo. And I'm like, what was that? And I'm thinking, okay, maybe that's just a a fluke. It's not going to happen. About five minutes later, I hear two more vehicles fly by. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. And then about an hour later, the same thing happens again. Another ambulance, a couple more police cars. And I go over to my friend and I just hit him. I said, is that, does that happen all night? He's like, every week. And he'd been there for a month beforehand. He goes, you'll get used to it. And I'm like, where did I just move, Right. And the next morning, I don't really get to think about anything. They say, hey, we're going to go cliff jumping. And I'm like, okay, these people, leading, where are they leading me? And, and so they go, let's take your car because you have a full tank of gas and we're running low on cash. And so we got in my car and we go up literally the side of the mountain going up all of these curvy roads into a place where we're going to go cliff jumping. And when we're there, we look and I see a sign um, clears date on this dam that we're going to jump off of. And it says no jumping. And I look at my buddies and I'm like, um, do you see the sign? And he's like, he's like, Oh no, it's fine. We did this a couple weeks ago. It's, it's totally great. No one, no one really cares. And I'm like, are y'all sure? I'm like, yeah, it's going to be great. And so the first, we're all standing there going like, all right, who's going to jump first. And then some, you know, one of the guys goes over and jumps off and does a gainer and dives into the water. And I'm like, this is nuts. And then all of a sudden, the rest of them go off like lemmings. You know, they're jumping in to this thing. And, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to see what happens. And I jump in um, after. It's a fun time. It's a fine time. And then after our little kind of foray swimming into this, you know, dam that we shouldn't have been, uh, we get back into my car and uh, uh, my, my friend gives me some advice, one of the guys that had been leading this whole little adventure, and he says, look, uh, when you drive back down the mountain to save gas, you know, because we don't have much cash, uh, just put it in neutral and ride the brake all the way down, right? So some of you are laughing because you're actually from the mountain area. Uh, for those of us in flatland like Houston, the highest, you know, peak we rose over was like, I don't know, high, on Highway 6 or I-45 bridge, you know, there's not, not, nothing huge that we went down, but, but I'd never been down anything big, and so I'm just riding my brake down this mountain, and by the time we get to the end of it, I start smelling something burning in my wheel bed, right, and I'm just like, what is that smell, and then as we get down to the end, there's a stoplight I got to stop at, I'm kind of coasting down in neutral, and I go to press my brakes, and it goes all the way to the floorboard, and I can't stop. And I look at my idiot friends that had given me this advice this whole time. And I'm like, we have no brakes. I have no brakes. And they're like, find the emergency brake. I'm like, this is my mom's car. I don't know where the emergency brake is. And, and suddenly I, I, I slam on the emergency brake. I, I skid to a stop in the middle of the intersection as cars are going past. And I look at my friends like, where are you leading me? And then I had a parallel park using the emergency brake of this car. And I'm like, what am I doing here? What, what is this place you've brought me to? I mean, have you ever been in that moment? 
Have you ever sat beside someone or behind someone and you were going to trust their leadership to, to lead you into a safe place? Maybe live in a good apartment. Maybe be in a safe area. Maybe have food or provision or, I don't know, a safe car with wise instructions. I mean, have you been in a moment where you've trusted yourself into someone else's hands and they completely let you down over and over and over again? And I look at that, and I I see that realm in my world, and then I look at our world. And I think what our world wants, what we long for, are leaders that lead us in a good direction. People that lead us on a great path. People that that have the best in mind for us and can lead us to a a place that's that's helpful, that's life-giving, not life-taking. Now, it's kind of a funny experience with me, but I tell you what, as we look at our world, what our world longs for are leaders that love. And the reason I start there is because that's what we see in this section. We see Jesus as a revolutionary leader. And as I read that text, many of you would push back and say, a revolution, Kevin? I mean, do you even know what a revolution is? Well, I had to look it up just to make sure. And a revolution is defined as this, an overthrow, a repudiation as through the replacement of an established government or political system. Or it's a radical or pervasive change in society. Or it's a procedure or course as to circuit back to its starting point. A revolution changes the way things are going. And that's what we have here with Jesus. And as I read that text, many of you read this story, the feeding of the 5,000, and you don't think revolution. And I'll be honest, when I first read this, I didn't think revolution either. But I'm very thankful for the, the, the writings and thinking of Tim Keller and Ben Stewart who have really helped shape my thinking of this text. And what we see in this text is we see that Jesus is the revolution we need. And if you're reading this and you're just thinking it's like a circus show, like a bad magic trick, like, oh no, everyone's hungry. Well, maybe there's some more bread. Maybe you need some bread. Wait a minute, there's a little bit more. If that's the only way you're reading it, then you're missing what Jesus is really doing in this section. So in this text, we see a revolutionary leader, his revolutionary followers, and Jesus' radical intervention in their lives. And so the first thing we see is a revolutionary leader. And so what happens in this section is that Jesus sees like no one else sees. See, Jesus is a revolutionary leader in this world, and he sees something that no one else sees. He looks at the disciples as they come back. Now, he had sent them out to preach just earlier in chapter 6, to preach, to cast out demons, to have authority over unclean spirits, to do all the things that he had been doing. Last week, we look at his selection of the disciples, and this was his moment to send them out, to experience ministry. And as they come back to him, it says he looked at them, and he says, come away to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure to eat. These guys were so busy. He looks at them, and he sees that his disciples are exhausted. Isn't that interesting? The first thing that we see about this revolutionary leaders is that he sees like no one else sees. He sees people for where they really are. You see, I want you to think about when you walk into a crowd, how do you see a crowd? When you're walking through the campus of A&M and you see all these like swarms of thousands of people, when you go to an A&M football game or an A&M basketball game, how do you see those people? I think for many of us, we see them as obstacles, like trying to get away, dodge them. 
Or maybe we see them as, as opportunities. Like if you're trying to sell something, you're like, oh, I, I can sell that person that thing. They will buy my lipstick. They will buy my ticket. You know, like as opportunities. Or maybe as opposition. Man, this person's in, in opposition to my ability to climb this ladder or to reach this pinnacle. When Jesus sees people, though, he doesn't see them as obstacles, as opposition, or opportunities. He sees them for what's actually going on in their heart. And he looks at his disciples coming back and they're exhausted. They're spent. And he says, hey, come away and let's just rest for a little while. I had a coach in college who was amazing at this. He was amazing about seeing us as individuals and seeing what we really needed. And and I I asked him one time, I said, how do you know how to train an individual to, to get better in whatever they're doing? Like, how do you know that? He goes, here's the secret. To look at them and to know when to rest and when to press. There are opportunities when you see this individual and sometimes it's time to push them forward to to help them to accomplish more. But sometimes it's to look at that same person and say, they've been pushed hard enough. Now it's time to rest. And so these disciples, they come to Jesus and they're a little bit exhausted. And he says, hey, just come away and relax for a little while. But then there's a second thing that Jesus sees. He sees the crowds. He sees his disciples and then he sees the crowds. And when he sees the crowds, it says that there's something that happens within Jesus. It says when they, when they came to him, they came to a desolate, desolate place. And now many saw them going and recognized them and ran there on foot from the other towns there ahead of them. And when they came ashore, a great crowd was there. And it says that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He looks at the crowds and it says that he had compassion on them. That word compassion is the Greek word, uh, try to pronounce this correctly, splagnitsomai. It means he had an internal gut feeling. It's when he saw these people flooding over the shore. It's like something stirred in the deepest part of them. And so he knew his disciples were exhausted, but then he saw these people and he had compassion in them. Something stirred within them. And it says that he had a, a statement about them. He says, these people were like sheep with no shepherd. You see, Jesus saw beyond just what was going on on the surface level. There was something deeper that they needed. See, Jesus sees like no one else sees. And because of that, Jesus leads like no one else leads. He's going to take a moment right here to do something specific. And that word, that phrase that he uses there, like sheep without a shepherd, is an indicting statement. See, when you and I hear the word shepherd, we think about gentle moments, sweet, tender things. You know, it's like Jesus with the lamb. You know, he's got blonde hair. He's real cute. He's got the lamb on his shoulders. He's like carrying the lamb across. Like, like that's our picture of shepherd. Someone that just lays in the grass and just pets sheep all day, right? I mean, when when do you interact with sheep? When you go to the zoo and you go to the petting zoo, right? And you kind of go, oh, that sweet little sheep, and you pet them. And so our image of shepherd is someone that's sweet and tender and cares for the little guy. But to the Jewish person and to these people reading this, that is an indicting statement. To them, a shepherd wasn't someone that just plays in the park with little furry things. For them, a shepherd was the picture of a revolutionary warrior. Moses was considered a shepherd. And there's one thing that Moses says in Numbers 25, verse 15 through 18, that Jesus is quoting. 
See, Moses was coming to the end of his reign, the end of his period of leading the people out of the, out of the bondage of Egypt. And as he's leading them in the wilderness, a new leader has to rise. And so he writes this. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And so the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom the spirit is in the spirit, and lay your hand on him. And that, that phrasing that he's using to lead them out and take them in, it's, it's war imagery. It's someone that can lead this congregation toward a great end. And Joshua comes in as a great leader. But as Jesus is looking at these people, he's saying they've got no leadership. There's no one looking after them. And that's an indicting statement because these people did have leaders, but they didn't have leaders that loved. Right in front of this section, you you see a picture of of Herod who's in power. Now, it's not Herod the Great. It's his son, Herod Antipas. And it's a weird moment in the Gospel of Mark. If you're reading through the Gospel of Mark and you suddenly land on this description of, of Herod Antipas, you're, you're kind of confused because you're asking yourself, okay, is it, is it ongoing at the same time as, as this feeding of the 5,000 or is it something else? But it's actually a flashback. And the reason it's there is because Mark wants to juxtapose juxtapose the leadership of Jesus and the leadership of Herod. And you see Herod, and he was not a man who cared for the people beneath him. He was a person that used the people beneath him. You can read the section. He basically marries his brother-in-law's wife, his brother's wife, so he marries his sister-in-law. And then in this moment, he has her daughter kind of dance in front of him, and he's like, okay, whatever you want, I'll give it to you, up to half the kingdom. And in that moment, John the Baptist had been speaking against this marriage, had been speaking against this relationship. And so that wife says, okay, that person is an obstacle to my success. If John the Baptist keeps speaking, he's going to pull me down. And so what I need to do is take him out. And so she says, tell Herod to kill John the Baptist, which kind of bummed Herod out because he liked listening to him call him out. I don't know why. But he had him in prison and he'd bring him out to like speak at him. And he says, okay, I'm going to kill John the Baptist. See, this man, Herod, saw people as obstacles. There were opportunities to advance his, his kingdom. They were there to just fill his needs. And in that moment, you see the juxtaposition of Jesus. He says, that's not the type of leadership that, that helps people thrive. I'm bringing a new revolutionary form of leadership. One author, one uh, commentator writes it this way. He says, you see the juxtaposition of Herod's feast and Jesus feeding and satisfying the multitudes on a peasant's diet. In spite of the tetrarch's pretension for royalty, the people are leaderless as sheep who possess no shepherd. And so he looks at the people, he looks at his disciples, and he's like, someone's got to do something. Someone's got to step in. And he says, I'm going to be a leader who loves. Have you had a leader like that? Have you ever been under someone that looks at the scenarios that are going on in your life or the lives of people around you and steps in and moves in in love? When I grew up at uh, my house, um, we had a, a fun way of interacting, which was basically fighting. Um, so I had two older sisters and 
everything I remember from the ages of, I don't know, about 7 to 16, 17 was a fight. Everything. And, and part of it was spurred on by me, right? So I was the littlest brother, and so I would go in and listen to my sister's phone calls while she's doing stuff because we had you know, landlines and not texting, and so I could listen in on her phone conversation. And so she's like, Kevin! I'm like, ah, okay. So that was my interaction. So, so it, was, it was mostly fights. And, and because of that mostly fight environment, my parents, in my estimation, seem to always be on edge. You can ask my parents or my kids later on how we interact with them. But in my estimation, it felt like they were always on edge. And so whenever I blew something, messed up, I was always afraid about how they would interact. And so I, I spent another summer in Colorado with my cousins that same summer. And I drove down and spent some time with my cousin Brock uh, in Pagosa, Colorado. And, and he, I had a job that summer painting houses. I had never painted anything that didn't have like a number attached to it or something, but I'm going to paint houses. And so he gives me this job and he gives me the job to power wash an entire house with, with water. It's a job that should have taken half a day. It took me three. The first time he set me up to do this, he says, look, now here's the deal. Here's how you handle a power washer. Here's the end that goes in the, the tip. Here's the deal. Make sure it's attached because if it's not attached correctly, you'll lose the tip and you won't be power washing the house anymore. You'll be crying in the corner. So make sure that that tip's there. He gives me all these instructions, sets me up for success. And the first time I turn on this machine, I point it at the house and the tip shoots over the house into the front yard. And I'm like, oh no. The one thing he told me not to mess up, I messed up trial one. And so he had already left. So I call him up and I'm like, yeah, Brock, remember you told me um, not to shoot the tip into the wilderness? Uh, yeah, did that, did that. And he's like, all right, grab another one and keep on working it. But I'm, I'm so ready for him to just freak out. And I remember after those three days of washing that house, he took me out to lunch and he's like, well, how do you think it's been going? I'm like, fine, I guess. I mean, I honestly was spraying more of me with water than the house. It was a horrible experience. And he says, you know, I had several friends of mine kind of laughing at you as they've been watching uh, drive by and they've been painting houses and laughing at you. And, uh, and I was like, okay. And, and, I'm, and I'm just expecting to get fired. I'm expecting him at this point to go, and this isn't working out. You know, I expect that conversation. He goes, hey, let's keep working. And he walked beside me each step along the way. It was amazing to have a leader who loved me and cared for me, even though I kept on blowing it. And that's the leadership of Jesus. Everyone else leads opportunistically. Everyone else leads in ways that, that look to use people to help their game. But Jesus says, look, I'm not about that. I'm trying to create an environment where everyone thrives, where everyone can win. It's completely different than the way that everyone else leads. But I tell you what, he doesn't want to lead this way alone. And what he does next is he brings the disciples in on this action. He says, I'm going to bring you along the path. And so as you read the text, it says that he brings his disciples together and they, they come to him with a, with a reasonable statement. They're saying, look, these people are hungry. Let's send them away to get food to eat. It's, it's, a, it's a fine statement. But Jesus takes this moment to teach them something. He's a revolutionary leader, but he wants us to be a part of it. He wants his disciples to have a foot in the world that he's bringing. And I'll tell you what, every great leader, every great boss does this. I'm reading a book called Super Bosses because I want to be a good leader. And they look at all these different bosses across different uh, industries, and they say, what do these people do that help people thrive? And I thought this was amazing. 
It says this, people are an essential part of any strategy of leadership. And regenerating the talent pool is the single most important thing any leader can do to survive and prosper. And he says this, super bosses aren't like most bosses. They don't follow the play, they follow a playbook all their own. They are unusually intense and passionate, eating, sleeping, and breathing their business and inspiring others to do the same. They look fearlessly in unusual places for talent and interview candidates in colorful ways. And I love this. They create impossibly high work standards and then push their protégés to their limits. They engage in an almost inexplicable form of mentoring and coaching, one that occurs spontaneously and apparently with no clear rules. And I love that description because I'm like, that's Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus is going to do. So they come back and they're all worried. They're like, how are we going to feed these people? They're all hungry. And Jesus creates a crisis for them. He creates a crisis for the disciples. He tells them, you feed them. And then you see the response. They're like, oh, sure, we feed them. The number is 5,000 men. That was counting the heads of household. There's several other thousand women and children also there. And he creates a logistical nightmare. He's like, you feed them. Now, their suggestion was, was reasonable. Hey, send them out, let them go get something to eat. It's fine. And Jesus goes, no, I don't think so. You feed them. And he creates a crisis in their midst. And he says, hey, why don't you go figure out how much they have? You know, just go, go count it up. He won't let it go. And then one of the disciples' responses, sure, should we get the 200 denarii we have? A denarii is a day's wage. So let's go get the 200 days wages that you've got stashed in your pocket. Where's that $30,000, you know, that we, we kind of kept? Oh yeah, Jesus, you just told us to leave without cloak, without money bags, and go preach. And now you're telling us to go get the $30,000 on the giving tree that happens to be on the backyard as we were kind of going into the wilderness. What are you saying? And most commentators say this is the most frisky the disciples ever get with Jesus. Because they're being sarcastic with them. They're like, sure, that 30,000 bucks, Jesus, perfect, great plan. And in this moment, Jesus goes, okay, go see what you got. Okay, we got five loaves and two fish. We got nothing. He says, go tell the people to sit down. He lets them feel the weight of their inadequacy. He lets them feel the fact that they can't do this. And then he says, all right, Let's do something here. And I don't know how he does it, but he doesn't do it like Dumbledore, right? So how does Dumbledore from Harry Potter create miraculous things? He would send them all out, and then he would say, we all have food. You know, he'd wave his wand, and all of a sudden, meals would pop up in front of all of you, right? He doesn't do that. He's like in the back, and he says, I'm going to let you give the food, meaning they're not going to see where this is coming from. This miracle is about you, disciples. I want you to see something in this moment. And he starts breaking bread and giving it to them. And breaking bread and giving it to them. And he lets them do the work of the miracle. He creates it and he lets them give it. You know why? Because God wants to show them something. That he's controlling this. That he's driving this. That he is the only one in power. He alone can do the impossible in your life and in my life. See, what does Jesus want for you? He wants to empower you to do ministry. 
He wants to. He wants you to have the power to do great things for his cause, but he wants you to be, secondly, dependent on him. He doesn't want people that are running out on their own. He wants to create dependent disciples, people that walk to him, that are energized, empowered by him to do the work. I was trying to describe this to someone um, this, earlier this week, and I said, look, whenever you were a little kid, um, did you ever help your dad mow the lawn? And I remember as a little kid, I, I, my, I see my dad mowing the lawn. I'm like, I want to go help. And so I'd go out there, and he'd be, having his, he'd be wearing his cut-off shorts and sweaty. He'd be like, all right, come here. And I would get over to him, and I would hold the lower rung of the mower, and I would just start to push. Now, this was an old mower. It didn't have, like, a self-propelled thing, you know? And so I would just be pushing as hard as I can. I'm like, I'm going to mow, Dad. And, he's, and he would just laugh at me. And then he would get behind, and he would stand there, and then he would start pushing. And we would start moving. That is the spiritual life. See, I think so often we try, we try to like come to Jesus and we're like, okay, I'm going to come to you, Jesus, and then I'm going to accomplish something great for you. And Jesus is like, that's not how we play. You hold on and you watch what I can do. You hold on to me and you watch me push this forward. I think so often in my life as I'm thinking about my time in ministry and what, what I've been able to do is I look over and over again and I see how inadequate I have been, yet how adequate he has been. You know why we need him? Because only he can change the human heart. Have you ever had a friend that didn't know Jesus that you just wanted to know Jesus and you went and studied about it? Like you went and studied and you're like, I got these arguments and I'm going to explain it to him. It's going to be so good. And, and you come with your ammo to that person. You're like, okay, here are all the questions that you had. And, and here, I'm going to shoot every one of those down. and It'll be amazing. You're going to come to Jesus and you're going to be like, what must I do to be saved? And I'll be like, easy there, buddy. It's perfect. And you, would, you got this moment that you want to create. And then you have the conversation. And it doesn't move forward at all. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Only I can change the human heart. Only I can fix this person. You get to play in what I'm performing. And so they miss it. They didn't see it. And the reason I know that is because what happens next? See, the next section, something crazy happens. He sends the disciples away immediately, and they they go across the water. And as they're sailing across the water, the waves kick up, the winds kick up. It gets crazy and chaotic as they're sailing across. Verse 48, it says this. And when evening came, the boat was on the sea, verse 47, and he was alone on the land, that's Jesus, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and about, it was about the fourth watch of the night, and he came to them, walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. But they saw him walking on the sea, and they thought, it's a ghost, and cried out. For they saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke and said to them, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. And here's the key, verse 51 and 52. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their heart was hardened. When I read that, that's one of those Bible moments where you're like, I'm reading, I'm reading, crazy, Jesus walked on water, cute. They didn't get the loaves. And that's one of those weird Bible moments. You're like, the Bible doesn't make sense. You know, like, what, what are you doing, Jesus? What are you trying to show? What is the lesson of the loaves you're trying to communicate? And it's this. Hey, I'm the leader who loves. I want you to come with me. But look, 
Only I can do the impossible. You can't. I can. And so for them, the place of the, the sea was the place of terror. They were afraid of the ocean. They were afraid of the sea. It was chaotic. It was uncontrollable. And the winds go up. Everyone's crazy. They're freaking out. And suddenly they see someone walking on the water. I mean, imagine that. I was on a cruise ship, and I remember the waves are going up, and I'm like, oh, I feel horrible. And I go off to look like over uh, at the horizon. They say, look at the horizon. It'll make you feel better. And I'm like looking at the horizon, and I can just imagine if suddenly I saw a dude walking across the water as we're rocking in the I'd be like, what is going on? I would freak out. And I wouldn't think, Jesus fed 5,000. I, I wouldn't make that connection, Right? <laughs> I would not draw those events together. I'd be like, this is insane. Why is he walking? What does this have anything to do with bread? Here's what it has to do with bread. Jesus can do the impossible. Jesus can control what we can't. Jesus can control even the things that terrify you. I love this moment because it shows this. Jesus walks on top of our worries. Jesus strolls on the things that terrify us. In Job 9, verse 8, it says this, He alone has spread out the heavens and marches on the waves of the sea. God alone can control the uncontrollable. And so why is he the leader that we need? Hey, he cares. He wants you to come alongside him. And only he can do the impossible. Do you trust him with your life? So what terrifies you? What do you fear that you can't control? Is it people in power? Is it the, op- the opportunities you're applying for? And I just don't know if these people in power have my best interest. I fear them. I need to impress them. Is it providing for your needs? Is it paying for school, paying for a car? Is it that you're graduating, you're freaking out? Like, how am I going to provide the, for my needs in this world? Or is it with your future? And I think when we get in the moments where we're terrified, we clutch harder on everything. We try to control it. We try to organize it. We try to make sure that our future plays out in the way that we want. And we try to control our own destiny. But we can't. Because only he can walk on the waves. Only he can feed the multitudes. Only he can hold you. I think for many of us, we're like the kids on Captain Planet. You may not have seen this show growing up, but I did. Um, Captain Planet and the Planeteers. Um, On Sunday morning, it was a Sunday morning cartoon, and uh, each one of these five kids had five special rings. There was heart, wind, water, something else useless. And... um, and, and, and what they would do is they would get into some sort of difficulty, right? Like, I don't know, Timmy fell down a well, someone was polluting somewhere, you know, like there was, there was some sort of crisis of non-recycling of cans, like that was kind of the, the aura of it, you know, like that oil company, let the oil spill, what are we going to do? You know, so some sort of freak out moment, the penguins are, you know, dirty. And so, and so all the kids had to figure out what to do, Right? And they're freaking out. They're like, how are we going to save the world? Like, I don't know. Give the penguin heart, 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 heart. It's not working. I don't, you make the ground move, 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 move. Doesn't help the penguins. 
You spray water, 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 water. They're not getting clean enough. Yeah, and so every moment you watch these kids try to go at it on their own, and every time they fail. And as you're watching it, it just gets disappointing. You're like, okay, the name of the show is not Kids with Random Rings, right? What's the name of the show? Captain Planet. The whole time you're dealing with this little chaos, we're saying, just call the captain. Like, this show can end in three minutes if you just call the captain. And so you watch them, like, fumble through all their little trials to control their life and make sure everything goes better. It's like, just call them. The name of the show isn't Kids with Rings. It's Captain Planet. Call them. Every week, same issue. Just call them. The same is true in your life. Like, hey, I, I, man, I, I, I can't handle, like, school, and I'm applying for these internships, and they don't like me, I'm not cute enough, and they're smarter, and, ah, call them. They're like, I just don't know if I'm going to get a job, the economy's not great, no one likes oil anymore, I'm a, you know, and I'm studying engineering, petroleum engineering, and, and pretty soon we're all just going to be, like, I don't know, like, working on carbon, I don't even know, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be solar-powered cars, I don't have a future, and call them. You're like, I don't know, I'm going I'm to be a teacher, or I've, I'm studying leadership, and, and I'm not getting recruited like I want. Call them. I'm going to go home, my parents don't know Jesus, and it's going to be awkward to interact with them. And call them. Because it's not on you to change the hearts of men. It's on you to kneel down and let him give the pieces that you give. And when you entrust your life to him, He'll lead you and care for you because he's the king who cares. He's the leader we need. He's the king who loves, who's looking out for you. You can trust him. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you so much for this moment in in the gospel. And I know so many of us have missed the real call from this section. I know I have. We don't see the miracle of the loaves as you actually providing everything that we need. We see it as, as help along the way. But Lord, I pray that we might learn the lesson of the loaves. That you are the only one who controls life. And it's by coming to you that you will fuel us and empower us to do the things that you're calling us to do. And I don't know what worries we're facing in this room, but I know for many of us they feel overwhelming. I pray that we might trust you, Jesus, because you are the God who walks on the waves. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Turn to your tables and have some great discussion.